1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Knicks Film School Pre-Game Show. My name is Andrew Claudio, a.k.a. GMAC, and it's time for one final matchup in 2023. A preview of the Knicks game on Saturday night against the Indiana Pacers. Um... Coming off a tough loss in Orlando, I'm recording this right after that game has gone final. Uh, obviously, the, the officials left something to be desired. The Knicks three-point shooting left something to be desired. An interesting Brunson game as well. I featured the Knicks going very small in the fourth quarter with Randall playing the center. Um, uh, hopefully it's a it's a bounce back game uh, against the Pacers because what felt like first to 110 against the Magic will probably be first to 130 against Indiana. Uh, joining me to talk about this matchup. I'm just going to get right to it because this is a long episode and uh, you want to hear from her more than you hear from me. Uh, Caitlin Cooper of the very very good and hopefully very popular uh Patreon basketball she wrote. Uh, one of the more informed uh, basketball minds that exists in in our circle. Uh, she joins me, and uh, I think you're just really going to enjoy this conversation if you've never heard her on our pod before. So let's get to it. Caitlin Cooper of uh, formerly of Indy Cornrows, uh, now of basketball. She wrote previewing this matchup against the Indiana Pacers. Enjoy, Caitlin. Welcome back to the Knicks Film School Podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me back. It is the Hoosier State. Hoosiers a little bit easier to say than Indianaian.
1: I feel any in. Ooh.
2: Yeah. So who's your hurt is
1: who's your, it is. I, we get Yankee a lot in New York. So we get called Yankees. At least I went to school in Virginia and I, I was told just because I'm from above the Mason Dixon line that it's, Oh, you're a Yankee. It's like, yeah, but I'm not, don't associate me with the people from Philadelphia. Like, don't, don't you dare do that? You know, this is
2: good to know though. Cause I think as an outsider, I probably would have said New Yorker.
1: New York is better. No, New York is better. Like (laughs) that 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 is actually the correct correct way to say it. Now the the funny part is just to give you even more of a dynamic, with me, you can't say I'm a Mets fan. So like even worse was being called a Yankee and I despise the Yankees. So it's or Exactly. There's levels to it, you know? So, (laughs) anyway, uh, we are off to a a rousing start, not talking about basketball on this podcast. Uh, But obviously, this is a matchup that a lot of Knicks fans are looking forward to. And it comes at an interesting time for the Pacers and former Nick Obi Toppin. I figure we'll just, just jump right into it. Earlier this week, Obi Toppin was taken out of the starting five along with Buddy Heald in a lineup decision that caught our attention if you can give some behind the scenes as to whether this was a move that was brewing for a while or was was it less to do about obi and more to do about who replaced him in the lineup where do things currently stand on that and why did that move happen
2: so this happened one other time earlier in the season when they went to atlanta during the in season tournament that would have clinched group a for the pacers and they put Buddy Healed and Aaron Neesmith back in the starting lineup, which would have been closer to last year's starting lineup at the end of the season before they shifted to development mode. But then after that game, Obi Toppin went back in with the starters in part because Aaron was injured. So for this game against Houston, this was a pretty seismic shift to put Andrew Nemhardt at the two spot, Aaron Neesmith at the three and Jalen Smith at the four, especially because the Pacers had kind of ruled out Jalen Smith at the four from last year. Like that lasted until December 12th of last year, and then they ended up shifting and figuring out that they were a little bit more workable, small with Aaron. I think it might not necessarily be so much about Obi as them wanting to play Aaron Neesmith at the three and put him into the starting lineup. They kind of were at a point where they just needed to make a change and do something. I will counter and say, though, that of the prior starters, Obi is the only one with a negative Um, swing net rating, which that's not an individual stat that has to do with what other lineups are out of the court and who else is out on the court with him. But if you look at some of their recent losses, like when they played the Milwaukee Bucks, when they played the Washington Wizards, it is somewhat of an indictment when you start those games and Buddy Heald is defending Giannis Antetokounmpo and Mm -hmm. Buddy Heald is defending Kyle Kuzma and those assignments aren't going to OB so the Pacers still have an ongoing issue at the four and the fact that they are mostly loaded with guards and centers and how they're going to be defending you know more elite wings and wing scorers and OB has now fallen into the crosshairs a bit we'll see if that continues to be the case in their upcoming game against Chicago and then against New York on Saturday if the starting lineup remains the change that it was
1: do you I'm assuming that's obviously matchup dependent. That Obi just is not a good matchup for for. I think they're literally putting Buddy Healed on the the Giannis's and the better fours out there. Like to assume that had the Obi starting five uh, been on the court on Saturday, and we'll see what the Knicks what what happens in the Knicks game. But like Obi would have not been matched up against Julius. Is is that been the trend so far this year that Obi's not getting the tough matchups when they play a big four?
2: It hasn't been the the whole season, but it's become more prevalent. And part of it too is like when you're playing the Bucs as the Knicks know from Christmas, the Pacers do not want Tyrese Halliburton at the point of attack. So like Tyrese will not be guarding Jalen Brunson and once Jalen really starts hunting him and looking for screens to get those switches. So that's going to be Bruce Brown. Miles is going to guard Brooke Lopez. That means that Tyrese needs to guard the other off-ball scorer, whoever the Bucs are starting at the time, most likely Beasley. And then... You're down to either Obi or Buddy on Giannis, and yeah, they just Obi had a lot of problems in one-on-one coverage against Giannis in the prior games. As it turned out, Giannis ended up scoring a franchise record of you know 64 in that particular game and had the whole ballgate incident. But yeah, I mean, to describe and to describe for Knicks fans, kind of what this is, is when they're playing the Wizards, Buddy Hield's picking up Kyle Kuzma. That's who he's assigned to. Kyle Kuzma has him completely isolated in space and spread action for the Wizards and Kyle deliberately calls for a screen to get Obi Toppin because he Mm. saw that as the more preferred matchup to go at and turns the corner and gets to the rim. So, you know, in the Knicks scheme, Obi wasn't doing a lot of switching. The Pacers switch a lot at the four. So this has been an adjustment for him. And when he gets out in those switches, I don't think it's necessarily you know, an effort thing or what he's doing defensively. He doesn't have a lot of hip flexibility. So he's good at moving in straight lines. He can get out and run and transition quite well, as you know, or he can backpedal. Okay. But when he has to defend laterally or defend backwards laterally, that's where he can have some struggles. So yeah, against some of the bigger wings, you don't see him doing a lot of that.
1: So that's the defensive side of the court. Now Mm -hmm. the Pacers defense this year being what it is, we've thought from our perspective that Obi was, the perfect landing spot for him was a team like Indiana. Now we didn't expect this like historically great offense to exist, but like a guy that wasn't the greatest defender, wasn't the greatest rebounder is now on a team that doesn't prioritize defense and doesn't prioritize like him needing to be a great rebounder. They're looking to to run, they're looking to go as soon as you get any type of rebound, the leak outs that he uh, will do sometimes on on the defensive end can lead to easy buckets. So to the Knicks fan that is invested in just Obi Toppin's future. I promise this will not be completely an Obi Toppin podcast, but like if you had to assess what he's been through these first, you know, 30 or 30 or so games this season, has it been enough of a success from what he's added on the offensive end and been contributing to this all time great offense or are the defensive issues really starting to become a problem?
2: Right. So, I mean, I think he definitely builds out their strengths for the reasons that you pointed out, particularly in transition and how much the Pacers want to play at a very fast pace. And then the half court too. the basketball index just stared a stat, I think a couple of days ago where they had shared that among off ball players, he leads the NBA in points per possession. He's been very effective off cuts. That's where he gets a lot of his offense. I still think he's near the top in two point percentage as a play finisher. So there has been certain games like when they played the Atlanta Hawks, for instance, the Hawks, blitz more ball screens than any team in the NBA. But part of the problem that the Hawks have is their backline defenders really want to mirror their chest to the ball and try to funnel that to the short roll, but they can't see anybody behind them. So that's a great matchup offensively for Obi Toppin because he's so active. He definitely will keep the ball moving. I've been pretty impressed with his ability to make reads if he maintains two feet in the paint as a screener. Um, But You know, when they played Houston the other night and he wasn't starting alongside Tyrese anymore, he had three shot attempts. He played 15 minutes and he set three total screens. So I won't say that Obi's completely a product of Tyrese. He's shown that he can score in minutes when he isn't out there. But if he's playing with a different type of lineup and he isn't as visible in the offense, it doesn't make as much sense for him in what role he has with the Pacers moving forward. So we'll see how they can do to tinker with that. I think overall, though, um, I think he has taken steps forwards as a score from going from New York to Indiana. I don't think that currently that the Pacers have a rock solid starting four on their roster. So I think mm. that's where they find themselves.
1: That that's I don't know if that's an indictment, but that I think will be the thing that Knicks fans hear the most. That the the plan, the future is not Obi Toppin at the floor in Indiana.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I won't say that he won't necessarily be on the roster next season, and I think that... I myself questioned a little bit why they went with Jalen Smith at the four in Houston. I know that they wanted to make changes, and I think that was more about just separating Aaron and Obi so that Obi could still fill the four spot minutes, but allow Aaron Neesmith to play at the three than it necessarily was completely about Obi. But, you know, Jalen has shot the ball really well and incredibly low volume, but he's a spotty driver. Obi is somewhat too. But like defensively, I don't think that you're necessarily going to be super successful with Jalen Smith switching out any better than you are necessarily with Obi. Maybe you get a little bit more secondary room protection. Maybe you get a little bit more rebounding, but that wasn't the case in the, like the 11 minutes that Jalen and Miles played together. And I think that there has been some internal development, but for the sake of the fact that they already spent like half of last season ruling that out, it kind of feels a little bit like they're grasping at straws with that type of an adjustment to me, but it's only been one game. So I'll continue to... Evaluate it here in the next few and see
1: how it goes. We should mention that we're recording this podcast before the Pacers pay, play the Bulls on Thursday. So for all we know, Obi started had thirty points and he's coming into this this Knicks game red hot. We're also recording this before the Knicks play against the Magic on on Friday, the first night of their back to back, which concludes with the Pacers on Saturday. So a lot of dominoes that could potentially fall. Uh, I think in general, it sounds like the the Obi be minutes when he's played with Tyrese have been uh, outstanding. Like you said, 76% from two-point range, which still leads the NBA at the moment. Um, but I think his struggles seem to be part of a theme with Indiana since the the in-season tournament. Maybe you could tell me differently that they've just like flat-out struggled. I don't know if it's just the, the the wear and tear of the schedule and really pressing to go all-in for that tournament like it seemed that they did. As, as caused them to regress a little bit or if they're they're slumping or whether teams are starting to figure them out. What would you say has been uh, the the biggest issue during this three and six stretch as currently stands since the tournament?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of the above. That road trip was very unprecedented for them. They were in Las Vegas, and then they had four straight road games, so they weren't at GameBridge Fieldhouse for nearly two weeks. That's really hard. And then they had exactly one day off after that finals game against the Lakers before they were in Detroit playing another basketball game. I would also say that I think the teams probably did see the Lakers blitz Tyrese as much as they did and decided, hey, let's try to mimic that. Um, I don't think every team's going to be as successful with it as the Lakers were with regard to... Tyrese, because not every team has as much length bringing Anthony Davis up to the ball and having Cam Reddish on the ball as what the Lakers have. But the Pacers, lots of several vets on the team weren't shooting the ball as well. So when he's being trapped and you're passing out of those, You're relying on the other teams to be making shots so that the traps relax against Tyrese and that didn't necessarily happen. And then defensively, they're just playing a lot of matchups that have revealed what their hole continues to be. They're playing Minnesota and Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards combined for 73 points. Tyrese didn't even play in that game, but you know, they're playing Orlando and it becomes very clear when you're watching Paolo Banquero, and Andrew Nemhard takes a perfect recovery angle against him, does everything that you want him to do. Buddy Heald comes and sets a hard trap and Paolo Bancaro is still scoring over the top of them. The Orlando broadcast during that game literally said, there's black shirts all around Bancaro, and the color analyst said, yes, but all of the size, the shirt sizes are small. <laughs> and it, it, in a lot of ways, it's like when you watch the Pacers, it's like they're trying to cover a king-size bed with a twin-size sheet. And sometimes they make mistakes defensively. I can quibble with the scheme. They've made radical changes to the scheme from last year to this year, but that's also kind of the point. They've made radical changes from last year to this year, and they're still a bottom-five defense and it's still not necessarily getting better. So I do think that eventually they're going to have to address some of what the roster issues are in order to get that ironed out. Of course, they don't have to be that good on defense. They just, they kind of just need to be merely bad, as I say, because the (laughs) offense is, is historically good.
1: What I was saying to, uh, to a bucks content creator last week, when we were previewing the two, uh, the Knicks played the bucks twice in a span of three days between Christmas and then on Saturday, um, was that like the Bucks' offense over the last, I believe it was 20 games at that point was like better than the Pacers. It was the number one yeah. offense in the league and what their defense was. Cause they got off to that tough start to begin of the year. And what their defense became was just passable. Like good enough is what you were looking at. And it wasn't like a top 10 defense or even a top 15 defense. It was like top 16, 17. Like th- that's passable for a team that has uh a title uh, a contention um, expectations or, or aspirations um, with the Pacers who a team, I hope this doesn't come off as disrespectful. I don't consider uh, with contender aspirations. Um, do you think that there is an emphasis way, whether it be from Carlisle or from the front office that like, yeah, this offense is great. And it's like, maybe we can be the Kings this year. The defense has to be better than bottom five bad and that there may make adjustments to try and, you know, trend toward like a top, a, a, a bottom 12 defense at worst.
2: Oh, I mean, it's definitely emphasized. It's been emphasized Mm -hmm. at media day since Rick Carlisle came here, that the things they were going to fix was defense and togetherness. And it just, it's kind of like watching an overworked ball of clay at this point in time. Like they've just, I think some of the fan base, because like, just for fans that don't know, like last year's Pacers offense, they were very aggressive at the nail. They were kind of overzealous at the low man, which led them to give up some more corner threes, but they would put a lot of bodies in the paint and they were still giving up a lot of points in the paint, still giving up a lot of rim frequency while also giving up some corner threes. This year, it's it's very opposite. They give up the fewest three-point attempts in the NBA. Their defense is kind of the inverse of the Knicks, right, where the Knicks build theirs from the interior out. The Pacers is very much about taking away the threes. They give up the most points in the paint in the NBA. I mean, people saw in the in-season tournament finals against the Lakers, right? The Lakers go 2 of 13 from 3, and they scored 86 points in the paint. So now they're staying home a lot more and defending pick-and-rolls 2 versus 2, doing late-switching they've relaxed some of that a bit. They do more doubling against mismatches. They've started bringing more help and it still just hasn't necessarily correct the problem. I know that Rick has mentioned that like after they gave up 150 plus to Kawhi, there's been 450 point games in the NBA this season and the Pacers have been part of all of them for better or worse. That He's like, hey, we've held four straight opponents under 120. I'm like, yes, that's that's true, but you've also played four bottom 10 offenses. And that's why I think this Knicks game will be a good test because not that Mitchell Robinson was holding down your offense by any stretch of the means, but the offense has been very good for the Knicks since he hasn't been in the lineup. So what the Pacers can do defensively there against a better high powered offense with so many guys knocking down shots with the exception of RJ and Julius will definitely be an interesting test for the Pacers.
1: So I, it's not necessarily a pushback, but just some context, like Julius, Since that historically bad six game start to the season is having his best season as a pro. Oh, yeah. Like it's a a 56 effective field goal percentage. And it's because like, man, I'm sure you know this, that that six game start to the year was it it was honestly the worst I've ever seen someone that high usage play. And this is going to come off as, as such a low blow to the RJ Hive. I say that until I watched R.J. Barrett over the last eighteen games, who <laughs> is having as low an efficiency season on someone with his kind of usage and, and minutes uh, since Kobe's last year in the league. Like he is a twenty-six uh, usage and a forty-four effective field goal percentage. Like it's it's like really bad at this point. So I, I will say the fact that R.J. like the biggest thing that's fallen off is his three-point shot and potentially a team that's not going to asking him to take take threes unless you think mm-hmm. that might, might be something that they scheme him being able to get to the rim might be actually what the doctor ordered in this matchup. Would that be a fair assessment that the Knicks and their ability to, to drive and get downhill will just kind of feast against a defense like this.
2: Yeah, I think this will go hand-in-hand with Randall to a degree because if if it is still Jalen defending the four, that was actually a matchup that gave Jalen difficulty last year. He got pushed around quite a bit, and that in part was what led to some of the lineup change because Aaron guarded him better, but now Jalen... Over the summer, spent the summer bulking up to play the five, but now he's starting at the four again. So we'll see how it goes. But I would guess the Pacers started the year where they would not double post mismatches. They wanted to stay at home and are like, hey, if we get beat in the post, we we shoot well enough from three. This is a math problem. I think that they've soon found like when they played the Raptors, they were very proactive, doubled Pascal Siakam a lot. They were bad at rotating out of those double teams. Some of the rotations have gotten better, but I imagine that they, depending upon what the lineup is, that they'll send doubles at Julius. So in that case, that will open up driving opportunities for RJ. And depending upon what type of actions they're running RJ in, um... That will Well, Aaron will probably, if Aaron's starting a small forward, that would put him on to RJ Barrett, which gives them a better defender in that type of matchup than what the Pacers have been showing against threes um, for most of this year. So it, it could be a good driving game because they, like I said, they do want to lock down the three-point line. They're pretty aggressive with their closeouts and they just, they don't defend the paint all that well. So um, we'll see.
1: What's up, Knicks fans? Quick break to tell you about our new sponsor, Prize Picks. Not only are they the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America, but they're also the easiest and most exciting way to play. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, it's just you against the numbers, picking more than or less than on a 2-6 to six player stat projection. With basketball season fully underway, you can now pick combo projections across football and basketball from the Specials League. This is a league-created, specifically, Specifically for combo projections that include two or more players from different sports or leagues. For example, take Jalen Brunson over in points or Julius Randle over in rebounds and combine it with two NFL picks like Lamar Jackson over in rushing yards or Zach Wilson over in interceptions. Prize Picks is a really simple way to play. Prize Picks offers weekly promotions that can lead to big payouts. Like on Taco Tuesday each Tuesday, Prize Picks discounts select player projections up to 25% to provide even more value. PrizePix now offers Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your account all basketball season. You know what to do. Go to prizepix.com slash KFS and use code KFS for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's prizepix.com slash KFS and use code KFS for a first deposit match up to $100. PrizePix. It's daily fantasy sports made easy. How best do you think they'll defend Jalen Brunson? And I mean, you want to talk about off to a great start this year. Yeah. What's funny is his three-point shooting is the thing that's probably the revelation from this year. Mm-hmm. So potentially slowing him down there might be in play. But we also just watched him against the the Bucks, put up 38 on Christmas, taking three point three threes in the entire game. They just took advantage of that, that very deep drop from Brook Lopez. Mm-hmm. And he just, like, anytime he got to the elbow, it's like, all right, now is when I can elevate and and shoot because no one's going to be near me. Is the, the, How best do you think they'll, how do you think they'll defend Jalen Brunson?
2: Well, now that Andrew Nemhardt's back in the starting lineup, Andrew is, in my opinion, the best point of attack defender on their roster. So that gives them a better chance in that regard. I know last year when they defended Jalen, they were really aggressive trying to weak him to his right as much as possible. And he just kind of wiggled into those tight spaces and still got to his pull-up midy anyways. And that was in a game that, that Miles didn't play. They don't do near as much ice coverage and pushing and weakening guys as what they would have done last year. They more so chase over and will funnel him to Miles. So Andrew mm-hmm. does give them a better opportunity, but I suspect... That yeah, I mean, I I love Brunson's game so much. I really, I really enjoy watching him play, especially the parts that I got to catch against him against Milwaukee too. So, and even in that OKC game last night, like not to take it back to Randall, but like, how do Knicks fans feel about the minutes when Randall is out there at the same time with Taj Gibson? I mean, I know there's not a lot of options given that you're trying to to fix band aids at the center spot. But
1: so, I mean, you you just hinted at it. They need to survive the Taj Gibson minutes, which are not. But we're, we're all kind of navigating this, this non Mitchell Robinson world. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that their offense will survive and potentially even be better when, when Hartenstein is the starting center and when he's playing 30 to 31, uh, excuse me, 36 to 37 minutes a game, because Taj probably has 10 to 12 minutes in him at this point in his career. Um, Knicks fans recognize that they need a backup center and whether it's Jericho Sims eventually coming back, whether it's my goodness, anybody else, Coming back like that—that's the point we are with with Taj Gibson. I think what you're pointing out is just a very clear weakness with the Knicks. Now, this may also fall as as a weakness on Tom Thibodeau not being willing to go to Julius at the five. We really only saw it once this year, and it was against the the Nets. Um, it was Taj's second game back on the roster, and. The Knicks, I mean, the offense looked great and the, the the rotations were were fine. Like Josh Hart can play the four against any backup four. Um, they didn't get a rebound at once. Uh, one single uh, defensive rebound while that Julius at the five lineup existed. So I think that as a Tibbs principle has caused him to go away from it. I, I'm curious your, your analysis of that specific lineup, like yeah. seeing what Taj was like, Worst case scenario, it's it can be as bad as that. And look all right, now you know. But we know that the Taj Gibson minutes aren't working either.
2: Yeah, this is why I brought it up because during I think it was like the second quarter when Randall was getting really heavily doubled. Taj Gibson's there, not just in the dunker spot, but on the strong side mm-hmm. and that's making it so easy. And I know that there's criticism a lot, which I think some are fair from the Knicks about how Randall's decision-making can be, you know, sometimes he's a little bit more of a five second player than a point five second player, but that's not helping him at all as far as the double teams. Cause he seems like he passes the ball out a lot better against teams who double from the top versus teams who double from the bottom. And by Taj standing in that exact spot, it made it 20 times easier to be doubling mm-hmm. from the bottom. So not even just like what some of the defensive issues were for Taj, particularly against those J-Dub, Chat Holmgren high pick and rolls where he wasn't really handling that that well with Josh Hart either. It just creates some conundrums. And really, if I know that Tibbs likes to play a five, I know he likes the rim protection out there, but if there's going to be a matchup to play Julius Randle at the five, doing it against the Pacers is the team to do it against because the Pacers are not a particularly good defensive team. They are not a particularly good rebounding team. And switching might actually be a little bit more effective for them if Mitchell Robinson isn't gonna is obviously not going to be playing. So maybe, maybe we get to the point where we get Julius at the five against Obi at the five.
1: Ooh, imagine that. that. My goodness, how, how the, the 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 clash that that would cause? Would Tibbs be able Twitter to
2: handle that type of minutes? Like, what I think happen? Tibbs
1: would just be like, "Wait a minute, why is there no center on the court?" I, he's just gonna spontaneously combust on the sidelines, and we'll we'll just he will just resign after the game. Was like, this is not the NBA that I love. You know, um, to be
2: fair, the OB at the five minutes haven't haven't been great for the Pacers. There's been a few times where it's been useful, where like out of necessity, because guys have gotten in foul trouble, they went with like Obi at the five against Philadelphia, and in the in season tournament, and it worked. Not necessarily because OB was defending fives. Typically, Aaron Nismith will be so like he was fronting Joel Embiid during that time. But I think they're getting outscored by like five or six points per 100 when Obi's solely at solo five. So,
1: the- you know don't let the OB have know that that (laughs) something that they clamored for, for for three years that it it went to Indiana, they tried it and it also didn't work there. Uh, I am very curious if Tibbs, this is is just a terrible way to talk about Taj Gibson because we respect him a lot here at the Knicks film school and in the Knicks world. But like I, I, at a certain point you got to wonder if his not, not even like his best NBA days are behind him, but like his, his passable NBA days are behind him, especially in certain matchups. And I, listen, I'm I'm right there with you. That playing Julius five minutes in in the second quarter uh, at the five, so that way, Hartenstein's not playing forty. 40- I guess 43 minutes at that point, you can, I think there's a passable way, like you said, to have him play. And I I know exactly the play you're talking about where they're bringing a double from either side. And when Julius like one thing to his credit that he's gotten better at, he's not perfect at it, but he creates looks for guys, whether it be like Grimes on the wing or even Chenzo or quickly on the wing um, off of his double teams. And he's the Knicks have generated a lot of three point looks from his double teams because he's just, I've been better at that this year, and in this situation, he's looking for where the double is coming from, and they have two options. It's to everywhere. <laughs> it's literally like, okay, this is going to end in a turnover. I was staring at the play last night; I could see it now, so I completely understand what, what you're talking about. The funny thing about how the Knicks are this season, I wanted to get your your thoughts on from what you've been able to watch of the Knicks this year, and I, I'm even more curious about your thoughts on Emanuel. Quickly, is like. I I, I've pushed back a lot that they could be better than this with a different minutes distribution, but the more and more I, 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 I maybe I don't think they could go up to a different tier in how good they are, but I do think they could have a better record. Like, I don't know if that's like two more wins, three more wins, whatever that number is. I don't think they'd be considered contenders if quickly was playing 30 minutes a game. But I mean, if you have any thoughts on Emmanuel quickly and how the Knicks have, you know, divvied out the minute totals so far this year. And maybe just some Nick's thoughts in general. I'd be curious to hear them.
2: Yeah, the thing with Quickly is his name really begets who he is as a player, right? Like, mm. he makes such quick decisions. He's He's what I just said about Randall, he's definitely a 0.5 second player. He's either going to take a quick trigger three, put the ball on the floor, get to his floater. And like last night, I'm sure that it's low hanging fruit. Like if I sit here and say like Emmanuel quickly should be playing more than 25 minutes per game, like the likes are going to go up on this mm-hmm. video. The views are going to go up and I see where our fans are coming from for sure. I mean, taking him out for the last four minutes of that game, I, I can understand where the frustrations are coming from. I think somewhat with the Knicks, it's it's a little bit similar to the Pacers and that you have all these similar sized players who kind of need to play at the same spot, but there's not overlap in what they offer you. Like they each offer something slightly different between DiVincenzo Vincenzo and quickly and Grimes and RJ and the RJ thing, you know, I'm sure that the Knicks are never going to, to address it publicly, but part of that has to be the politicking of like, if we're going to get a star player in house, He's RJ's the play. way to do it. And if he's coming <laughs> off the bench, that makes it a little bit tougher of a sell. And my guess is some of that from Tibbs is probably coming from a place of him wanting to have some length on the floor. And RJ does offer you a little bit more of that because even in that stretch, like when I talked about the Chet Holmgren uh J dub pick and rolls at the top between Taj and and Josh Hart, that was a little bit happening in the third quarter between quickly and Josh Hart, where they were running high pick and rolls with quickly's defender to try to get SGA a switch against quickly. And they were scoring quite a few times out of that. And when the last defensive possession that quickly was out there, they had gotten the switch that they wanted and J dub got to the rim against quickly, as I recall. So I'm guessing that was probably somewhat of Thibodeau's thought process. The thing that I would come around back to though, is that some of this kind of just goes back to what matchups are dictated because of, Jalen and and Julius and obviously you're going to be playing Jalen and Julius at the end of the games but you've got Brunson on Giddy and you've got Randall on Lou Dort which prior to that there was Emmanuel quickly was on Lou Dort which suits what he does defensively so well because his off-ball defensive instincts are like tremendous to watch like that's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite little nick uh nuances is what emmanuel quickly does with stunts and his ability to get back and recover sometimes just him as the low man he does a really good job of covering things up that shots that don't get taken that would against other types of defenses so i think that yeah there's a case for quickly to be playing more minutes but i'm guessing that what tom thibodeau's thought processes unless you tell me differently is that he just wants to have one of josh hart or rj on the floor for the length purpose Am oh no, that's correct
1: in that. Not? No, that's the reason. And I'd argue because you, you bring up the, the the exact shot that got him taken out of the game, where uh quickly gets switched on to, to Jay uh to Jalen Williams and he takes him off the dribble and forces it was a mid range too. Like I mm-hmm. I mean you can say I, I understand what you're saying that he did technically shoot over him, which like we saw I, I, we were doing a watch along last night on our YouTube mm-hmm. channel, and I'm I'm literally staring at the play happen. And I'm like, Oh, he's going to motion to the bench. Now, the, the issue I have is that he went to RJ in that spot. I thought it was going to DiVincenzo in that spot. DiVincenzo's got a, a, I think he's shooting over 55% from three since moving to the starting lineup. He's got a, an effective field goal percentage over 60 for the season. And he played 21 minutes last night. So like there is a crunch in the, in the two guard spot. My, to your point about like, just what Mayo quickly gives you on the whole I, I, I'm at the point where you just have to respect like what the data is telling you and for someone like Tibbs that talks about on-off and net rating as like his thing that he pays attention to the most uh, can I, can I, I'm going to give you an over-under with the four-man unit of uh, Emmanuel Quickly, Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, and Julius Randle have this year for an on-off. I'll give you an over-under of 15. Do you think it's over or under?
2: Oh, I bet it's over.
1: It's it's over. Yes. Yeah. You you want how much over do you think it is? It's in three hundred and thirty nine possessions. By the way, those four on the court at the same time. I'll go seventeen. It's twenty six point five. It's in, 100, right. it's in the one hundred. Right. It's in the one hundredth percentile. This is Warriors' death lineup. Like from a data perspective, mm-hmm. it's been that good, which is why I think the the frustration has really started to boil over in the past couple of days with Knicks fans. Like you have a thing that's not just working it's working in the top 1% in the league on both ends of the floor. Just, let it ride, like even to your biases of like. Can I ask what the
2: offensive rating is for that group? What's the, what's the offense?
1: The offensive rating for that group is one thirty four point five. The defensive rating is 108.0. It's in the one hundredth percentile right. offensively, ninety fifth percentile defensively.
2: Right. So both sides are really good, and that's that was the other point that I was going to make. That even when some of those screening actions between J Dub and SGA were happening, and they were doing show and recover with quickly, so that they could keep heart on Shea. There was times where Shea was still shooting over the top of Josh Hart, like, and that—that's just the caliber of player that that Shea Gill just is. But the point being is, like, if it's simply a size thing, like, there's a wing, and you're still that was that was a step back too. That's what you gave up in that situation. So you're kind of sacrificing the other things that Emmanuel quickly is going to bring you as an off ball defender and everything that he adds offensively by making that decision. And maybe some of this is just like the Tibbs ethos. And that it feels to me that like, even though the Knicks in this post, like Mitchell Robinson era their their offense is, you know, otherworldly and the defense has dropped from like ninth to 21st. You kind of have to alter what you're thinking and being like, Hey, what lineups are we going to put out there? That's going to boost this offense to the best possible levels versus he's kind of always seemed like a person that even if the Knicks defense wasn't Always elite. It was how am I going to plug the most leaks, and how am I going to make this defense the best that it can be with personnel out there, even if that isn't even necessarily the case. Because of the point that I just I just made with Hart and what Hart was, you know, going on with Shea Gilgis. So,
1: well, um, look the the Josh Hart lineups are right. like they're pretty great as well. I think the I, I in a I'd love to have an alternate reality where the sub he made was Steven Chenzo. -hmm. Quickly, instead of like like we all still would have been frustrated by it. But the four man unit I just mentioned with the insane net rating, right? If you take quickly out and make it Divincenzo, it's plus fourteen with the ninety eighth percentile offensive rating and the seventy eighth percentile defensive rating. Like it's like they still have effective lineups that exist. I don't want to look too much into lineup data. This is around two hundred possessions for for both. But I, I think the the more the bigger frustration, I'm very curious when you watch him on Friday. Well, what's funny on Saturday night, he might actually have a good game, RJ Barrett, but the efficiency for him falling off a cliff, I think, has trickled down into the rest of his game, whether it be the decision making or the rebounding or the defense. And like, there was just no reason to put him back in the game last night. That's where I think the minutes for quickly or whomever should come from. It's from less RJ minutes. I don't know if you caught that or felt that way last night watching the Thunder game. No, for
2: sure. And that's why I said, like, how much of this goes back to politicking? Because if you pull him during closing time, that's a very loud flashing signal to the rest of the league of like, hey, we don't put this guy in our closing lineup. And like, in part two, like this applies to Obi Toppin and to Benedict Matherin, because when they were both on the starting line at the beginning of the season, they were not playing at closing time. Like that was typically going to Buddy Heald and Aaron Eastman. So like, the closing lineup is more reflective in a lot of respects about who teams value and who they trust and what they're doing with starters and obviously the minutes distribution. So I just wonder how much of that's playing into it because I think from a basketball perspective, like when I'm assessing what coaching decisions are made, I always try to go from it, like, you know, down the list of what are the possible reasons why they would have done this. And if you exhaust them all, typically you land on the fence of like, you know, is this being done because eventually they want to be able to trade this person? And I just wonder how much of that's playing into it.
1: Man, another month like this from RJ, and I'd argue playing him as many minutes that <laughs> you are is working his trade <laughs> that's, value. That's a
2: good counterpoint.
1: You know, um, so we'll see. I'm I'm very curious how how these two teams match up on, on Friday, especially with this new version of the Knicks offense that as you've you've pointed out, is is much better. And like two tips is credit, like Quentin Grimes, I thought played very fine last night like arguably he was really good last what night what did he play not, like 12 minutes 11 minutes like hit two threes was really good on ball he was part of the the rotation or i guess part of the lineup that got them back in the game in the second quarter checked out after 11 minutes Steven shenzo hit four more threes again last night played 21 minutes, would have played less if they didn't put him in for the last like minute of the game Uh for uh, the, he actually went to Randall at the five for the last minute of the game to try and boost the offense. Uh, and then quickly, of course, playing 25 minutes. It, it, it really, I do understand the frustration and the, I mean, politics is a good word for it, but like the log jam that exists within their mm. their guard lineup, uh, it would take some flexibility to be like, let me see what DiVincenzo with the three next to quickly or next to Grimes would look like. And I don't know if he's he's ever gonna be comfortable doing that. This may be the team to do it against, is from what you're telling me. That the And the Grimes, the
2: Grimes, was, the Grimes yeah. thing's really interesting to me as well, because like I said, each one of those players has slightly different strengths, and I think among them Grimes is the stickiest at the point of attack. And last year, he was one of the better players who guarded Tyrese Halliburton in part because Tyrese rejects so many screens. And he's one of the few guys last year that I watched Tyrese reject a screen and the defender still beat him to his spot anyways. And that's what Grimes did in in two of the games that they played against him. So obviously, I see if Tibbs is willing to up his minutes a bit just to get him out on the floor against Tyrese because that was one of the better matchups that I watched last year in terms of who was most effective at guarding him.
1: And I do have two more questions. One being a Tyrese Halliburton question. Mm-hmm. And uh, look, the the start he got off to this year, and I, I, he still somewhat kept it. I know these last nine games have been a struggle. He's been covered a little bit differently from the few Pacers minutes that I've seen. But like he was th- these games where he was, you know, thirty and twelve with no turnovers, and it was just like an every night thing. Like these are video game numbers. Um, were were pretty incredible, especially through the in season tournament. Um. What? How much has he fallen off? Has he actually fallen off? Or is he just being covered differently over these last nine games?
2: I mean, he's he's missed some shots that he was previously making. Of course, his shot difficulty was pretty high during the in-season tournament. And he was like in God mode. He was definitely on one. There, There has been teams mimicking what the Lakers were trying to do. So he has seen more blitzing, although that hasn't been the case the last couple games. Because a point that I've made is... Like, yeah, teams might want to do what the Lakers did, but not everybody has the personnel to blitz and not everybody's going to rapidly adjust their scheme for one game if that's not typically what they do. So the Rockets were not blitzing Tyrese. They had Shen Goon and drop or if it was Jabari, they were switching those ball screens and he had another 30 point game. Mm -hmm. The turnovers overall is something to watch because it was really remarkable to me through the hot start that the Pacers got off to, that they ranked top five in turnover rate and in pace. That's really hard to do. Playing at breakneck speed without being loose with the basketball. Like I looked through the past six years and only one team has done that. When it was last year's Oklahoma city thunder. So since the in season tournament, the Pacers have fallen down to about 21st in turnover rate and against the Rockets, they're playing all these different lineups. It's very clear that there's not a lot of continuity or familiarity there. And that contributed to them con- committing even more live ball turnovers, but certainly like, The extra attention on ball with two on the ball coverages has led to some of the increase in turnovers as well. And that's why momentum is both their friend and their enemy because the degree of speed that they play with and how much transition frequency they get in games is very helpful to Tyrese for the reason I just pointed out. He he really likes to reject screens. And when you're playing at that pace, it's very hard for an on-ball defender to both absorb the ball and then direct him into actually using that screen, which then leads to a lot of emergency rotations. The flip side of that is if you commit a live ball turnover and your whole team is running it like OB full-speed sprint, it's very hard to get back and prevent that. So they rank like first or second in points per possession off of live ball turnovers. And they're also 29th in defense off of live ball turnovers. So, (laughs) you know, it's definitely a double-edged sword for them in that regard. But like just on the Tyrese front, I think he started to find his way out of it a little bit, but yeah, it it has definitely been a change in coverage because even when they played Memphis, it wasn't blitzing, but they were very aggressive sending defenders and, and almost nexting, being very much at the nail, even when buddy healed was at the wing, which is not something that I've, personally seen opposing teams do against somebody who shoots 40% on seven threes per game for his career. So teams have been more aggressive shrinking space against Tyrese.
1: Yeah, I know it's, I guess it's sacrilege amongst Knicks fans to be like Tyrese Halliburton is good because of the, uh, this may just be a Twitter rivalry, but like, uh, the discourse between there him, and seems to be so. Him and Brunson and Trey Young and Niemegard, and it's like, well, this person's better. I, I mean, I think they're all really good. Mm-hmm. That that's that's where I've landed on. Especially with with the start Halliburton got off to this season. Um, I, I look, I'd be surprised if both of them were on the All Star team in in a couple months. And I think both of them are deservedly supposed to be in the All Star conversation at the moment. What's up, Knicks fans? Quick break to tell you about AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs, such as gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to evaluate your baseline health. Fun fact, I recommended AG1 to all my friends, family, and Mrs. Claudio. We drink AG1 first thing in the morning, to make sure we have the energy needed to take on a busy day. There's no debate. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash film school. That's drink. That's drinkag1.com slash film school. Cool. Check it out. Last question before I I let you get out of here. So I've been doing this with every single guest that I have on the pregame pod. It's a Mount Rushmore of rivals. So NBA calendar gets released sometime over the summer, and there's the dates that you circle because, like, I cannot wait to play this team. Now, I don't know if I've how much I've talked to you about like your specific Pacers fandom and whether the dates you circle on the calendar are like emotional and specific to like, like I like personally I'm out for blood every time the Knicks play the Miami heat, which as you can imagine made last year's playoff series, very conflicting. Um, Personally for you, who are the four teams that you look forward to the most when they either come into town or when the Pacers go into their town to play them, whether it be from a fan perspective or just like as a, as a, basketball analyst like you look forward to playing at these teams uh or at least, at least the Pacers playing these teams
2: unfortunately i think from the fan perspective probably number 1 on that list is going to be the Milwaukee Bucks because mm. of the ballgate that just occurred that and because weird. it definitely started like even before that happens you know Tyrese did the pointing at the watch, which he said was about, this is our time. I think Dame took that as, hey, you're 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 stealing my you're stealing you're my thunder. celebration there. Yeah, <laughs> and I think some of that carried over. Like I think that this is kind of an unintended thing from the in season tournament, right? That like it kind of created some rivalries, maybe in ways that the NBA didn't necessarily foresee happening. So the Pacers play the Bucks twice on New Year's Day and then have a day off and they play the Bucs again. I know that that's probably going to be on a lot of calendars. Be watching those two particular games. I'm most interested in it because, you know, when they did allegedly take the game ball, um, that was probably the most defense they played against Giannis in that game. So, <laughs> If if I'm just more interested to see like what what is the game plan going to be so he doesn't go for nearly seventy points again, mm-hmm. so that that will be high on the list. Number two is probably the Knicks. The Pacers' season shifted dramatically around those two Knicks games last year. Between shall we call it the Wally Zerbiak game? I guess I guess we can. Um, is when the Pacers went on their hot their best portion of the season when they won eight to ten games, and then the next game against the Knicks was when Tyrese got hurt and they just never really recaptured that same magic again. So I think between
1: real mm -hmm. quick, do Pacers fans call it the Wally Zerbiak game? I I think indeed they do. Damn it! all right, we don't, while let me choose my words carefully, the word, the views and thoughts of Wally Zerbiak do not reflect the, the, entirety of Knicks fans or its fan base, specifically the fans at Knicks Film School. I've had
2: a lot of people tell me that. (laughs) Those
1: from last year, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I think some of it too, like for the reasons that you pointed out, like definitely not me because I enjoy Jalen Bronson's game a lot and I really liked part of the aspect I liked of Team USA is how differently the two of them put their impression on the game but I think that's some of where this rivalry comes from because Tyrese was coming off the bench and a lot of people did not think that Tyrese should be coming off the bench for Team USA so I saw a lot of Twitter arguments about that I was in the camp that I felt like Team USA's biggest strength was going to be their depth and that they could put a bench unit out there that could play at that degree of a pace against other teams that didn't have as much talent in their second five. So I was fine. The Tyrese was coming off the bench behind Brunson, but um, I think the Knicks would be number two. Number three is going to be against the Kings. Probably a very, another mm. obnoxious narrative matchup where we must continue to wonder if the Kings traded the right or the wrong guard or not and relitigate that over into infinity. I feel bad for Kings fans at this point. It's where, you know, Tyrese does any interview and it feels like he's getting asked more about that trade in the Kings a lot of times than he is his current tenure with the team that he plays for. But um i think especially like buddy Heald gets booed pretty mercilessly when he goes back to play in sacramento for reasons so um between the two of them that that one usually i think garner's a little bit more attention i'm trying to think what another one probably for me like it's not necessarily a rivalry but i really enjoy watching tyrese think his way through the matchups both with boston and miami i don't think there's really any bad blood there necessarily but like he was held to a point in the first game one of the games they played against the heat last year and then he had Um, his career high at the time, scoring 43 the next time they played him. And I think that's kind of like a hallmark of Tyrese, that if he sees a coverage that limits him in one game or he sees a particular matchup, he, he tends to process it and spit out the data and find an answer the next time it comes around. So I always really appreciate him about that. And then also another defensive matchup that's been didn't get to see it because Tyrese was out against Minnesota, and Jalen McDaniels was definitely, or Jaden McDaniels, I'm sorry, was definitely limited in that game. But he's he, he and Quentin Grimes have been two of the better on ball defenders against Tyrese. So I really like watching the Pacers play Minnesota as well.
1: It warms my heart that you put the Knicks on that list. I can't tell you how many young Knicks fans just don't know about the <laughs> Knicks Pacers rivalry it's from the '90s, from 2012, 13, like. Uh, the, the, I mean, the Mello getting blocked by Roy Hibbert is something that I'm still personally not over. And it's a thing I still don't harms like to, you. it's very much like the, you see the Jersey behind me, like Mello was my guy. And I thought he was single-handedly going to get us to a game seven. And then Roy Hibbert oh, literally with his single hand blocked that from happening in game six. Um, you add in, I mean, the Reggie Miller of it all. And those, those rivalry, those, those bloodbaths in the nineties were, um, important to forming me as a Knicks fan and a lot of older Knicks fans like myself. And then I have these kids that are like, well, we hate Brooklyn more than we hate Indiana. It's like, I don't know a Nets fan. Like, what are you talking about? There's never been a significant <laughs> net nick game in my life. So why would I, I, I care about that rivalry? So it makes me happy. And maybe that's something that the, the, the OB trade and these two teams potentially matching up in the playoffs this year could bring back is the Knicks Pacers rivalry of old, Caitlin.
2: And you know what? In the in season tournament, when the Bucks were in the quarter or when the Knicks were in the quarterfinals against the Bucs mm-hmm. and the Pacers were playing the Celtics, I my heart wanted the Knicks to win that game. I was like, this is going to be fun if these two teams get to the semifinals. But
1: well, you know what ended happened? up happening? I because I had a different perspective. I thought we were going to lose to the Bucs, and I was like, well, if the Pacers lose to the Celtics, then we get Knicks Pacers at the Garden later this week. And instead, what the Knicks earned as a reward for making the end season tournament, an extra road game against the Bucks, and then an extra road game against the Celtics on Friday. They're 82 games this year. They're the only team to play the Bucks and the Celtics five times each. Oh, that's so, a good
2: point, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it worked out great for us making the season tournament. The opposite of what happened with the Pacers, where they actually got to go and experience Vegas and and the the. the well, Okay, last thought. Actually, your your thoughts on the end season tournament, like not not the the fallout after the nine game stretch that they've kind of struggled through, but like the. As an NBA fan, it's impossible not to see how it worked. Like I cared about December basketball. Mm -hmm. I made plans with friends like, hey, the the Pacers or Lakers finals is this Saturday night. We should watch it. Um, Just from your perspective, as somebody who had a team that was in the finals of the tournament and made their way through the tournament, what was it like watching it and covering it and, I guess, to an extent, enjoying it?
2: Well, from a content standpoint, it was like exhausting. It was great for business, but like I did one in one 24-hour span, I think I did three Celtics podcasts. So there was a lot on my plate during that particular week. But from like the actual perspective of it happening, like it was great for the Pacers from a visibility standpoint. They have one national TV game this year. Mm -hmm. Like it was funny because when they talked about the player participation policy, they're like, you know, this isn't really gonna apply to anybody on our roster because we don't have national TV games. So, you know, it it doesn't really matter. So Fans getting kind of like, I was very surprised during like the Team USA stuff because people were talking so much about how many hit ahead passes Tyrese has thrown. I'm like, he's been doing this for a year. It's just that people didn't really get to see him doing it. So, from that, and then I also just think it was really valuable for especially young teams like the Pacers getting thrown into that mix. Like, there were stakes involved, there was heightened coverages. We got to see that against the Lakers and have a little bit more of a measuring stick of where the Pacers are at and their trajectory and how people stood up against those types of. like I said, the the exaggerated game plan. So I think it was valuable and I liked it. Like I went into it and said, like, I'm not going to have some opinion about this, you know, preconceived idea until I've actually watched it. So I think it worked out as it was intended. And maybe they'll continue to tweak some certain aspects about it. But I think it was an overall positive.
1: Yeah, I should add the well the Knicks like for a while it looked like the Knicks were going to end up playing 42 road games and 40 home games because of the in-season tournament. It, the news came out earlier today that the Knicks are getting a home game added back to their schedule. They're going to play the Pistons at home. So at least the Knicks I'm going to assume the Pistons will have won a game by then taking all the pressure off of that matchup in February, but I'm not going to guarantee that the Pistons have won a game by then either. Um, that I will say, I was a little surprised that in your Mount Rushmore you didn't have the Pistons. I I know like the the, the malice and the, those rally the the those rivalries in the early 2000s. Does any of that still linger? Do do both fan bases just acknowledge something happened and we don't talk about it anymore?
2: I think that my heart is just so sad for the current state of the Pistons that I didn't mm. have. I didn't have the ability to put them up. on
1: that Okay. That's fair. It's like so what they bleak. are at the moment. It's so Look,
2: bleak. Every but, game, there's a new picture of Cade Cunningham looking as though he's staring into the abyss of some mm-hmm. sort. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's very much like, like Phil Jackson ran the Knicks for like three years in the mid 2010s. And like, like I, we don't have anything to show from it. Like it was kind of spinning your wheels for a couple of years. It was like him and, feuding with Carmelo Anthony through the media and he got paid $60 million for those three years. And there's, there's a hint of that with Monty Williams. I I don't know if like from your X's and O's, uh, you're seeing some things that he could be doing better or that he is like instilling in them. But I'm with you that like, it just seems like it's gotten significantly worse with a lot of young guys that you'd hope were somewhat better at this point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the problem is, is that people didn't necessarily foresee it coming. Like, I don't think that the Pistons thought they were going to be this bad this year, which speaks to their evaluation ability. And also that it isn't necessarily clear who the keepers on the roster should be, although Cade's had a much stronger stretch here. I'm probably a little bit more favorable of Cade than what it seems like the overall general consensus on him is his turnover rate has gone down and he's had a couple 40 point games here. So if nothing else, I guess at least they can walk away with that. But like it just doesn't necessarily feel like their young core fits all that well together. And then obviously trying to play that many bigs at once isn't super conducive to effective basketball either. So, yeah, I mean, I did, I do see a lot, I follow a lot of Pistons fans. And I know that Monty had a quote that said, like, I think probably most of the blame falls on me and a lot of them were like, Probably, like Probably. the fact that <laughs> the fact that, like there's been everyone continuing to be employed through a twenty six game win streak says a lot right there. like how many teams yeah. would have a twenty six game or twenty seven game losing streak and and nobody loses a job?
1: It's the very rare situation bit because it's year one of a long contract. Right? You almost accept that, like, all right, you get one. like Derek Fisher, his first year with the Knicks, they went six they went seventeen and sixty five. And there was once, there was at a point in that season that they were five and 35. So, like, because it's year one, you almost get a, a hint of a mulligan. Um, I, I'm just realizing this now. Fred Katz and John Mack are going to laugh at this. Every time they do a pod together, it somehow diverts into Pistons talk. And I, <laughs> as their producer, I'm like, guys, this is a Knicks pod. Let's get back to it. Galen somehow this became a Pistons podcast and they're going to laugh at that when they eventually listen to this. Um, well, should we turn it not, into
2: a Lakers podcast? Cause how, how, many games did, how many games did Mike Brown last that season when they started? That's out? five. Yeah, obviously he's lost five or six games. So Yeah. Now that was a, a The special expectations were a bit different. There, there, but- that
1: team had championships. Like Kobe was on that team. There's no Kobe <laughs> saying, like, be gone of this guy, you know, at, at any point. So um, well, Caitlin, you've been great with your time. I appreciate your insight and look forward to this matchup on Saturday against the Pacers. Before you get out of here, please let the fine folks at home know where they can find you and all of the stuff that you do.
2: My Twitter handle is here on the screen at C2 underscore Cooper. If you go there, the link to my Patreons in my bio. So it's patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote, which has now become more and more a mixture of, I do a lot of writing, but also been doing some video breakdowns where I get on the screen and, and do some key points from games. I did a lot of those during the in season tournament. And then I've been doing my mailbag as a video that includes film with it as well. So if you're more of a visual learner, there's stuff there. If you prefer reading there's stuff there, I think there's a little bit of everything. So.
1: I'd love to have you. Thank you, Caitlin, so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. And we'll wrap up there. Once again, a big thank you to Caitlin for coming on today's show and helping me wrap up 2023 with a preview of this game on Saturday night against the Pacers. Basketball, she wrote, is the uh, name of the podcast. You could check it out and check out her merch, check out her writing. She said she does film breakdowns as well. Um, It's it's the best place to get the most informed opinion on what's going on with Obi Toppin or the Pacers or the NBA at large when she delves into those types of topics. So thanks again to Caitlin. I can't wait to have her back on again soon. As far as I'm concerned, that'll do it for me in 2023. Thank you for all the support that you've shown me this year. If we've shown this specific show this year and then across all of our, our network, I I just, Continue to be thankful for uh, the the platform you've given us and uh, the blessings that you give me. And I look forward to many and more. I mean, we're talking about game 32 of the season. they not going anywhere. Just wrapping up 2023. Many and more uh, basketball conversations with all of you in the future. So. I'll be back, not before the Minnesota game. I'm not doing a pregame pod on New Year's Day, unfortunately. Uh, But uh, I'll be back before the Hawks game on Wednesday morning. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Enjoy the game tonight. Happy New Year. And I'll speak with you soon. Peace. Once again, a big thank you to Caitlin for coming on today's show and helping me wrap up 2023 with a preview of this game on Saturday night against the Pacers. Basketball, she wrote, is the uh, name of the podcast. You could check it out and check out her merch, check out her writing she said she does film breakdowns as well. Um, it's the best place to get the most informed opinion on what's going on with Obi Toppin or the Pacers or the NBA at large when she delves into those types of topics. So thanks again to Caitlin. I oh, can't wait to have her back on again soon. As far as I'm concerned, that'll do it for me in 2023. Thank you for all the support that you've shown me this year. If we've shown this specific show this year and then across all of our, our network, I I just, Continue to be thankful for uh, the the platform you've given us and uh, the blessings that you give me, and I look forward to many and more. I mean, we're talking about game thirty-two of the season; they're not going anywhere. Just wrapping up twenty twenty-three, many and more uh, basketball conversations with all of you in the future. So. I'll be back, not before the Minnesota game. I'm not doing a pregame pod on New Year's Day, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I'll be back before the Hawks game on Wednesday morning. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Enjoy the game tonight. Happy New Year. And I'll speak with you soon. Peace.